When news breaks, Rita Skeeter fixes it. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for freelancers. All right, let's say for a moment I'll do it. What kind of fee am I going to get? I don't think Daddy exactly pays people to write for the magazine. They do it because it's an honor, and, of course, to see their names in print. Rita Skeeter looked as though the taste of stink sap was strong in her mouth again as she rounded on Hermione. I'm supposed to do this for free? I'm Heather Pricewright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. And welcome once again to The Quibbler, where we continue to be reading Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix forever and ever. This one, if anything, is even longer than Goblet of Fire, but it is less stupid. <laughs> this week we are reading the chapters The Beetle at Bay and Seen and Unforeseen. You will hear spoilers, though not for Infinity War, just for Harry Potter, because we haven't seen Infinity War. Although are, are we, we did... Go- are we going to? Also, we both read the Wikipedia page, so don't add us. and there will also be cursing and some adult themes doesn't thanos like get the deathly hallows or something i think that's like what the movie's about basically but i don't know because i only read three sentences of the wikipedia plot description and then i was like i have known five words of the last like 50 words because you haven't seen the other 18 movies I've seen enough of them that I should be able to understand some part of what is happening. Harry Potter and the Infinity Stones. In addition to Thanos, this week's adult themes are First Dates, Freedom of the Press, The Streisand Effect, Escaped Convicts, and Toxic Work Environments. All right, this is going to be a doozy. Alex, what happened this week? I don't think I can recap what happened this week. Too many things... Too many disjointed things happened this week. We're going to do our damnedest. All right. In one minute. Here. (laughs) (laughs) Remember when they were going to be one minute? Now they're like 15 minutes. Uh, That literally went out the window 60 seconds into episode one. Indeed, indeed. Here it is. This week's chapters in one minute. In this week's chapters, we find out immediately why Voldemort was... So happy, it's because there was a mass breakout from Azkaban prison. It's 10 Death Eaters, right? Yeah, so nice round number, including Bellatrix Lestrange. Uh, so that's troubling. Also in the news is the fact that Broderick Bode, who you might remember was in St. Mungo's on the clothes ward, he died because he got strangled by a houseplant that was given to him for Christmas. So... Things still suck at Hogwarts. Several more decrees have been issued, one barring teachers from discussing anything that's not germane to their lessons. So there's like a mass gag order on Hogwarts professors. I don't know how that works. Umbridge has also put Hagrid on probation. The long-awaited Hogsmeade Valentine's weekend has arrived, and Harry and Cho head out together, uh, not hand in hand, but just side by side. And once they're done talking about Quidditch, they basically have nothing else to talk about. They wander around the village. Cho says, let's go to this super cute tea shop I know to have some coffee. 
Can I briefly interrupt there? Yeah. Isn't it weird that wizards have like all this super weird like food and candy and liquor and just fucking normal coffee? I was thinking that. that It's like Cho wants coffee now? She doesn't want like super wake up juice or whatever they would have? Yeah. I I don't know. Uh, Coffee is delicious. So. Just surprised me that wizards have coffee. Even wizards haven't topped coffee. There you go. Amazing. Okay, go on. Uh, So the tea shop... Madam Puttyfoots is, it's pretty cute. There's a lot of doilies everywhere. It kind of freaks Harry out because he's traumatized from doing time in Professor Umbridge's office. Also, there are these cherubs that like ejaculate confetti onto you. Ew. That's what they're doing, right? No, they like throw it. Oh, well, I didn't mean it like literally ejaculate the confetti. Then why did you say ejaculate? Because it was, it's- We got to stop saying that word. It's an evocative- Verb. It's horrible. Move on. All right. Well, anyway, these <laughs> these cherubs are floating above. Are they like real? They're like cherub statues, or what? Are, what are they? I think this is. I don't know. I think they might be real cherubs that are just like tossing out confetti. Yeah. Uh, that is a hilarious detail. So Harry is to make a long story even longer. Uh, the state goes disastrously. It's really awkward. There are a lot of people making out. Uh, Harry keeps getting, like, hit in the face with confetti. Harry mentions to Cho that he has to meet up with Hermione Granger later because Hermione has asked him to meet her at the Three Broomsticks. Cho's like, uh, excuse me? You're meeting up with another woman immediately after our Valentine's Day date? Uh, so things, things go downhill fast from here. Cho brings up the fact that she used to go to this place with Cedric, and then she wants to talk more about Cedric, which Harry, of course, isn't that interested in rehashing. So there are tears and some harsh words spoken, and the date abruptly ends, and Harry and Cho go their separate ways, and Harry mutters, women, to himself. Harry rendezvous with Hermione at the Three Broomsticks. She's there with Luna Lovegood and but-but-buh, motherfucking Rita Skeeter has returned. Hermione has hatched a plan where Rita Skeeter will interview Harry about what happened the night Lovo came back and it will run in The Quibbler, which is published, of course, by Luna's father, Xenophilius Lovegood. So they do the interview right then and there. Gryffindor gets destroyed by Hufflepuff without Harry and the Weasley twins, so they lose 240 to 230. Harry keeps having more dreams in which he's looking for, he's like going down the corridors in the Department of Mysteries. Uh, The Quibbler interview drops, Harry gets tons of mail which draws the attention of also the owl's step in the butter dishes. That's Disgusting. that's pretty gross, you Disgusting. know. Disgusting. Like they really need to separate mail time from breakfast. This is with the wizarding world so obsessed with regulating every aspect of daily life, this does not seem up to code <laughs> one bit. Unhygienic. Yeah, that uh, the wizard FDA should be inspecting Hogwarts for this. Uh, it's not the FDA. 
Food and Drug Administration, don't they do? No, the, the, it would with, be... The Sanitary Commission, the Wizard, like, Restaurant Board? Yeah, it would be more like Local Jurisdiction Restaurant Board. Like, yeah, the people that right. give the, like, aid grades in New York. Yeah, the Hogsmeade uh, Sanitary Commission or whatever. The High Inquisitor should inspect that. But I guess wizards probably have some instant cure for salmonella, so whatever. <laughs> anyway, Professor Umbridge takes notice of the fact that Harry is surrounded by fucking owls, by like 30 fucking owls, comes over, demands to know what's happened. Harry figures there's nothing for it, hands her the quibbler, says, I did an interview, bitch. Uh, he doesn't say bitch. <laughs> he says, I did some interviews. Umbridge turns like purple or one of these colors that people turn in these books when they get angry. Umbridge freaks out. By midday, she has banned the Quibbler. She's not only banned the Quibbler, she has posted that anyone in possession of the Quibbler will be instantly expelled. So, of course, that ensures that the story basically goes viral within the halls of Hogwarts. And even Cho is impressed by Harry's bravery in telling his story to the Quibbler. So they reconcile. After a very draining day, Harry goes to bed... His defenses are down a little bit, so he has a really detailed Lovo vision in which Voldemort is reading the riot act to Augustus Rookwood, one of the Death Eaters who escaped from Azkaban. The upshot is this other fucking Death Eater, Avery, told Voldemort that they could imperious Broderick Bode and use him to break into the Department of Mysteries and steal whatever weapon they're trying to get, but Bode couldn't touch it, which is how he ended up in St. Mungo's, and now they have to start from scratch. But Harry figures out why Bode was in St. Mungo's, and that Bode was imperialist, probably by Lucius Malfoy. Actually, I think Hermione figures this out, uh, now that I think about it, which obviously she did. She's the only one who ever figures out anything. There's more terrible lessons with Snape. Harry shows some success, though, by accidentally breaking into Snape's mind and getting snatches of images of Snape's horrible childhood. But they are interrupted in their lessons by the sound of a woman screaming. It's Professor Trelawney. She's been unceremoniously fired by Professor Umbridge and is being ordered out of the school. Harry notices to his horror that Umbridge seems to be enjoying this, so Umbridge is really showing off her sadistic side. None other than Albus Dumbledore intervenes. He says, You have the right to fire Trelawney, but you can't make her leave the castle. You get to keep your sweet tower apartment. Dumbledore also announces that he has found a new divinations teacher, which means that Professor Umbridge can't appoint one. And in walks but but buh motherfucking Ferenz, the centaur, who you might remember from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Mars is bright tonight, motherfuckers. And that's what happened in this week's chapters. Hoo boy. Plot on plot on plot on plot. This is the fun part of the Harry Potter books where like the rising action like starts to be like that part on a roller coaster where you're going basically like vertical. Mm-hmm. To mix metaphors, like, the pot is, like, really boiling now. Like, we're at a rolling boil here. The pot on the roller coaster is boiling <laughs> exactly. and approaching the summit. I warned you I was mixing metaphors. Um, no, I think 
that's how much is happening here. There's a boiling pot in a roller coaster. Yeah, that is kind of what it feels like. Also in terms of like the consistency of tone. And <laughs> like yeah. One minute, we're on a terrible date. The next minute, Harry's inside a mass murderer's mind. It's It's just a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, so let's talk about this terrible date first. It was a cramped, steamy little place where everything seemed to have been decorated with frills or bows. Harry was reminded unpleasantly of Umbridge's office. Cute, isn't it? said Cho happily. Uh, yeah, said Harry untruthfully. Look, she's decorated it for Valentine's Day, said Cho, indicating a number of golden cherubs that were hovering over each of the small circular tables, occasionally throwing pink confetti over the occupants. Ah... They sat down at the last remaining table, which was situated in the steamy window. Roger Davies, the Ravenclaw Quidditch captain, was sitting about a foot and a half away with a pretty blonde girl. They were holding hands. The sight made Harry feel uncomfortable, particularly when, looking around the tea shop, he saw that it was full of nothing but couples, all of them holding hands. Perhaps Cho would expect him to hold her hand. What can I get you, my dears? said Madame Puddyfoot a very stout woman with a shiny black bun, squeezing between their table and Roger Davis's with great difficulty. Two coffees, please, said Cho. In the time it took for their coffees to arrive, Roger Davis and his girlfriend started kissing over their sugar bowl. Harry wished they wouldn't. He felt that Davis was setting a standard with which Cho would soon expect him to compete. He felt his face growing hot and tried staring out of the window, but it was so steamed up he could not see the street outside. To postpone the moment when he had to look at Cho, he stared up at the ceiling as though examining the paintwork and received a handful of confetti in the face from their hovering cherub. What do you think about Joe's choice here in making Harry's first date go so, like, dismally? Well, Harry is pretty distinctly lacking in emotional <laughs> intelligence, and that being the case, it's not super surprising that he does not handle this encounter well. I don't know if he's lacking in emotional intelligence because, you know, he has that he's keyed into like Neville's emotions when they're on the closed ward in like two chapters ago. But yeah, because he can relate to them. Yeah, I guess he's, you're right. He can understand emotions that he can personally relate to and like imagine himself in the situation. But he can't he doesn't empathize with Cho. So he doesn't. Which like, is weird because the central traumatic event of his life is also chose but he for some reason he can't figure that out he does not seem to understand that cho cares as much about what happened in that graveyard as he does and he's really insensitive about her need to talk about it and it's just hilarious because this whole podcast is us being like harry needs to talk about his feelings and, like, process and deal with them and, like, exist in a safe space where he can, like, express his needs and thoughts. And Cho is handing that to him on a silver platter. Cho is like, what if we had an actual human being conversation about our shared trauma? And he's like, uh, 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 sorry, uh, have to go see Hermione. Also, why are you crying? Also, go fuck yourself. Also, bye. <laughs> okay, Show maybe did not pick the greatest venue to broach this conversation. It's so I think weird. She's sort of, she's sort of at fault too. I mean, she's being a total emotional weirdo too. I think neither of them can figure out what they want from the other. 
Harry likes Cho, but he also super doesn't want to be around her one-on-one. It terrifies him. Cho seems to have feelings for Harry primarily as sort of a stand-in for Cedric, as the last person that saw him alive. I think Cho likes Harry as a person fine. Mm -hmm. There's plenty that would like make Harry Potter an appealing crush, but I don't actually think Cho is like romantically that into him. I think she has like really specific needs emotionally that only Harry can provide for because only he can have the conversations she needs to have. And he is not here for that at all. No, which, you know, is fair. Like, he, you're right. He shouldn't be ambushed, like, as Roger Davies, like, max on some chick. (laughs) And, like, Cho is always crying, and he's really insensitive about that, but also it's really distracting and disarming and kind of strange that she keeps just like bursting into tears in all their interactions. I would be disoriented by that if I were Harry as well. It's just, it's too bad because it's just the wrong time and place for these two, you know? Neither of them are in a good place to be on a Valentine's Day date. Yeah, Harry shouldn't be dating. Especially with each other, yeah, I mean. No. Cho, I think... You know, she has this whole thing about, she was like, oh, Roger Davies asked me out. And it's kind of like, you probably should have just said yes to that. Like, she's going to move on much more effectively with some other, like, normal guy rather than sort of, like, obsess over Cedric by, like, haranguing Harry about it. Maybe she doesn't want to move on. Well, Clearly she doesn't. But, you know. At this point. She's going to have to. Yeah. No, I know. It's just the... But, and Harry just shouldn't be in a relationship. Like, Harry just does not have the mental or emotional bandwidth to be figuring out first love right now. They could be suited to each other, I think, in a different universe, but maybe not. I don't don't think so. I think they could be fine friends. They're fine when they're, like, chatting about Quidditch. They don't really have any chemistry. She's pretty. He's famous. But, like, I don't see them as having, like, sparks in particular. I really like two things in this scene, though. First of all, Roger Davies is, like, a player. <laughs> He's the one that got with Fleur, right? Yeah, he He's was. always, like, making out with some hot blonde girl. Um, He must be very handsome or very good at kissing or both. Second thing I like is Madame Puttyfoot's is just, like, the quintessential teen makeout den. <laughs> and... I just feel like every high school has that place that, like, people go just to be weird and make out. Yeah. uh, It's like, we were at this, I don't even remember why we were here, but it's this bar called, it's not even a bar, really. It's like a bar slash, like, game room place in, like, the West Village in New York called Bat Cat. I guess you can go there if you're a teenager, even though they serve alcohol. Anyway... We were there, like, meeting some people, and then, like, I don't know, it turned midnight or something, and all of a sudden, it's like every teen is on these couches, just, like, macking on each other. And I was like, I am too old for this. Yeah, we, like, scooted out of there. <laughs> we got really freaked out about being in teen makeout den. We were like, we are inappropriate witnesses for this particular, like, I don't know, social phenomenon. <laughs> but it, I just, you know, actually, I mean, in reality, my teen makeout den 
It's the green room. It's the, it's high the green, green room. room. Yeah. Exactly. It's the theater room. <laughs> it's the theater green room. Um, I but, never availed myself of it only because my boyfriend went to a different high school. But boy, oh boy, did people make out during lunch in the theater room. Hey, there's no performing arts at Hogwarts, it seems like. Oh my God. There's no art, period. What the fuck? They are very stunted and limited in their learning and D- growth as individuals. God. Yeah. They should have had Gilderoy be the theater teacher. He would have put on a pageant. I would read that fan fiction. Mm-hmm. Or, fuck, Dumbledore loves him some entertainment. Yeah. Flitwick sort of, in the movies, Flitwick like a like, directs a choir that has frogs in it. But Which I, I would join. <laughs> You're right. There's no... There's no performing arts. So there's no performing arts spaces for, like, dorky theater and band kids to, like, stick their braces together. Yeah. Sucks. Oh well. Moving on, let's talk about the fact that Hermione has gone rogue. She started in these books as very by the book, if not rules obsessed, I would say rules observant with some exceptions. Pretty rules obsessed. Her most famous line is we could get killed or worse, expelled. <laughs> and now she's blackmailing a journalist. Yeah, Hermione's evolution from just like pure goody two shoes to like a kind of occasionally morally ambiguous like (laughs) hyper pragmatic fixer i mean it's always in the service of good no i know but you know she's just she's just become so creative in her sort of like interpretations of how to do the right thing. Yeah. Every idea in this particular book that is illegal or borderline illegal has its origins in Hermione, at least so far. Hermione came up with the DA, you know, which is like one of the least rule abiding things that they do in any of these books. (laughs) And Hermione is now, yeah, straight up blackmailing a journalist in order to get the press coverage that she wants, which is just genuinely unethical. And like you said, yeah, it's in service of the good. And I don't necessarily blame Hermione, but like her treatment of Rita Skeeter, Rita's a fucked up person, but this is inappropriate. It sort of dovetails with her discovery of how house elves are treated, don't you think? That's kind of when she stops being as observant of the rules. Oh, yeah. I think she basically discovers that there are a lot of systems that are oppressive. And then she's like, okay, well, fuck all systems. (laughs) (laughs) It's delightful. That which is not just is not law. Yeah. I mean, but really, that is kind of how she has begun to live her life. And she just straight up, first year Hermione would have tried to follow Umbridge's proclamations. Mm. You know? And she just straight up, ignores them and laughs at them like she's literally laughing at the one that says if you're caught with the quibbler (laughs) then you're expelled because she's like this is the best possible way to make sure everybody reads this shit so Hermione takes like yeah she has become the kind of person that puts no stock in unjust rules but that's not the kind of person she started as and I just think it's a really good character arc yeah you're right she changes and grows a lot as like a sort of moral actor. It's very Gryffindor of her. It is, and you see why she's in that house. You see why she's really not a Ravenclaw. I mean, although Ravenclaws, I guess, aren't necessarily that rule-abiding either, but this is a very, very Gryffindor quality. Um, I also like that she basically identifies the Streisand effect, <laughs> which is where, like, no one will have heard of something, and then the attempt to cover it up 
makes everyone hear of it. Which I guess Barbara Streisand did that about some story, but I don't remember what I don't, story. I don't. I don't know. Um. So anyway, I just think this is a good Hermione, just a good arc of a character. Oh yeah. Um, I enjoy this this new Hermione a great deal more. So speaking of Rita Skeeter, I think we should touch on this for a minute. I also think we should, and we've been getting some feedback to this effect. Probably plan a Quibbler after hours about the Wizarding Press. I mean that. Is up both of our alleys. Yeah. And we have a lot to say. But briefly, let's just talk about the press environment that they're operating in. Because it makes this plot of Hermione's really interesting. So basically, like, wizards need a more diverse media environment. Yeah, there needs to be more than one newspaper, probably. Although it creates a massive business opportunity for the quibbler, since people are clearly dissatisfied with their daily profit coverage a business opportunity that xenophilius like takes no advantage of which is really interesting (laughs) but yeah the daily profit is basically state-run media at this point and what's really interesting here is that hermione is offering rita this like enormous scoop like something that a journalist like rita in the muggle world would be like absolutely on fire to like get this story but it's such a limited and a controlled media environment that there's nowhere to publish it like she can't sell it yeah you're right i mean you see stuff like this where there's this self-censoring in media in order to kind of maintain like access you know yeah only a couple journalists this is like kind of a famous case study, but in the lead up to the war in Iraq, like a couple of reporters famously, I think for McClatchy and a couple at the AP had pieces about like the lack of evidence for weapons of mass destruction. And uh, they had like a really hard time getting these stories like published and they weren't picked up in. Uh, no, and like, main ma- wa- in, in on like cable television and in, in major publications, you no. know, because there was no like appetite for that and you'd put yourself on the wrong side of the white house which you need a good relationship with in order to do your job every day that's a really good example and that's kind of what what's happening here but i think it's different because there's no sort of like legitimate publication that will pay for the biggest story like ever told in the wizarding world right which says a lot about how anemic and unhealthy their just news is yeah i'm kind of confused by the relationship between the ministry and the daily profit because the daily profit seems to be an independent business it has a publisher but fudge can kind of throw his weight around with them well look what he's doing in hogwarts yeah i mean he's probably making the same kind of choices he probably wasn't exerting pressure He's got some, in the like, same way before. Alien and Sedition Acts pushed push through. Yeah, I mean, basically. So it's just like shitty because, I mean, we've talked about this before, but like Rita's actually one of my favorite characters. And I would love a media world in which Rita had the opportunity to do her job well. But she basically explains the news business to Hermione. <laughs> Rita blotted the front of her grubby raincoat, still staring at Hermione. Then she said baldly, The prophet wouldn't print it. In case you haven't noticed, nobody believes his cock and ball story. Everyone thinks he's delusional. Now, if you'll let me write the story from that angle. We don't need another story about how Harry's lost his marbles. 
said Hermione angrily. We've had plenty of those already, thank you. I want him given the opportunity to tell the truth. There's no market for a story like that, said Rita coldly. You mean the prophet won't print it because Fudge won't let them, said Hermione irritably. Rita gave Hermione a long, hard look. Then, leaning forward across the table toward her, she said in a businesslike tone, All right, Fudge is leaning on the prophet, but it comes to the same thing. They won't print a story that shows Harry in a good light. Nobody wants to read it. It's against the public mood. This last Azkaban breakout has got people quite worried enough. People just don't want to believe you know who's back. So the Daily Prophet exists to tell people what they want to hear, does it? said Hermione scathingly. Rita sat up straight again, her eyebrows raised, and drained her glass of fire whiskey. The Prophet exists to sell itself, you silly girl. Hermione's like, don't you ex you just exist to tell people what they want to hear? And she's like, no, girl. We exist to make money. This is a business. I'm. We're only running stories people will buy. And if people aren't going to buy a newspaper that says Harry Potter is not an idiot, then they're not going to print that story. Do you not understand money? Which is very funny. I mean, yes, I see where Rita's coming from there, but I think it also, I think it also represents J.K. Rowling's sort of jaded view of the press because a lot, in my experience. A lot of people working in media who, like, they make mistakes, but they really don't view it that way on the editorial side, you know? The the, the view on editorial is very much, we have a mission, we're going to tell stories that people need to hear, and uh, I think that's true in almost any newsroom you go into. So this did strike a slightly false note for me. I mean, I think you're right, but I think people do get angry at the media basically for being a business. Right. Like, which is annoying because people don't pay well for the media that they consume. Mm. So then you get this interesting kind of like interloper. You get the quibbler, our dear namesake, which I'm very pay, proud of. Who doesn't pay for news either. Um, or no, who doesn't pay for stories either. <laughs> the quibbler doesn't pay its contributors. <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> Luna's like, it's really about exposure and, like, just getting your name out there. Uh, pay your motherfucking writers, everyone. Um, which is hilarious because we are currently making free content. So, never mind. But we're not choosing not to pay someone. That's true. We only don't pay ourselves. It'd be fucked up if we had a producer. That's true. Which we do not. Um, yeah, we do this all ourselves. But... It's interesting. The Quibbler is an interesting example of, in the same way, a limited news environment, a really closed society like this, like, breeds conspiracy. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising to me that basically the only alternative media is total conspiracy theories. Like, out of left field, virtually unsubstantiated nonsense a lot of the time. But also in the wizarding world... Stuff is so wild that literally anything could be true. I know. It's so funny when Hermione's like, LOL, Crumplehorn Snorkax. And you're like, that's no dumber than Flobberworms. Or fucking beasts you can only see if you've witnessed death yeah. firsthand. I, Hermione <laughs> is still really pedantic about this kind of thing. Or Rita Skeeter is too. She's like, no one would believe anything that's in the Quibbler. 
Yeah. Nothing the Quibblers reported is any stranger than what's actually happened in any of these books. Their story about Sirius secretly being a member of, like, a rock band is pretty out there. I mean, Ron Weasley owned a fucking human man that lived in his pocket for 12 years, so... You know what? Point, counterpoint. (laughs) You are right. Peter Pettigrew lived as a pet rat for 12 years. Yeah. No, you're right. A1. Yes, that's true. Above the fold. <laughs> um, so we will do at some point when we have the bandwidth a quibbler after hours about this because we have so much more to say about the wizarding media landscape. But I also just briefly want to talk about Umbridge and all these crazy de- decrees. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of related to like the kind of society they're living in. She really fucks herself with this overreach. (laughs) Yeah, she does. She doesn't do a kind of essential part of like consolidating power. She creates no allies. Except kind of the Slytherins, but they're 15. Yeah, they're children. (laughs) (laughs) And the only real thing they do for her is like break into the room of requirement. But I don't remember... In the movie, she kind of gets filch on her side, but so far we haven't seen that in the book. But, like, even Snape, who hates children and is pretty inclined to be, like, an umbrage stan, is just like, fuck this woman. She's terrible. So, yeah, she doesn't seem actually that skilled at kind of, like, politicking. Yeah, she kind of picks Trelawney as one of her first marks. Trelawney, to me, seems like someone that could have been cultivated... Oh, yeah. Like, easily flattered. Totally. Like, no, you're right um, about that. Umbridge built no power base for herself. She just immediately started attacking everyone on the faculty. Well, and she also has developed no real understanding of, like, the loyalties within the school. She seems genuinely surprised that every teacher comes to Trelawney's defense, or virtually every teacher. Right. Even McGonagall, um, who doesn't like Trelawney. At all, and thinks she, like... McGonagall essentially thinks Umbridge is right about Trelawney's teaching abilities, but she's like, but you're horrifying as a human being and we are going to like align ourselves against you just straight up. She's immediately radicalized the entire Hogwarts staff against the ministry. Yeah, she has. No, she's, um, she's a bad actor, but she's also not particularly good at being a bad actor. And she, she goes way too far, way too fast and she blazes out really quickly. Like, mm-hmm. she's relevant for, like, a book. <laughs> and then she sort of comes back in Seven, but, like, that's just because they are recruiting everyone evil they can think of. She's out there. And these decrees are wild and unenforceable and just, like, bad policy. Yeah, like, the one that says teachers can't discuss issues that aren't related to their subject matter with students. I mean, Lee Jordan, who's a constant unsung hero, points it out by saying the twins can't be disciplined for playing Exploding Snap in Umbridge's class because that's not technically about defense against the dark arts. Yeah. He's like, you can't tell us what to do unless you're telling us what to do in the face of a dark spell. I don't It's just, It's just funny. She, she comes in way too hot. She does. And um, flames right out. So I guess the like big plot point that we haven't really talked about yet are these breakouts, these Azkaban breakouts. Yeah, the stakes have gone up another notch and... A 
couple of notches. <laughs> this is like really scary. Ten more notches, uh, to be precise. And I think it's another good opportunity for Joe to widen the perspective here because there's this really striking passage where she talks about how other students in Hogwarts besides Harry are becoming like subjects of whispers and curiosity because they're related to a lot of the victims of these Death Eaters who've escaped. Uh, for example, Susan Bone says to Harry that she now sort of understands what it's like to be Harry, and it sucks. Yeah, she doesn't know how he puts up with it. She's like, really, truly, this is terrible. I don't know how you've been doing this for all these years. So yeah, Harry becomes kind of not the only person who has to deal with being the subject of like morbid curiosity. And I mean, this event is like really upsetting in terms of how the wizarding world is quickly descending into another great time of war. But it's also kind of turning the tide on people's ideas about Harry. So in some ways, it's actually not a good thing. But the silver lining is it's starting to legitimize his story. Because right. It's, yeah, it's galvanizing. And it's this turning point where people are like really questioning the ministry's version of events because it has a lot of holes in it. Yeah, the story is no longer plausible in many ways at this point. Cho actually points this out. She says it's weird that when Sirius Black broke out, everything was basically on lockdown and we had Dementors creeping in every alley of Hogsmeade. And this time, nothing and it's Sirius Black times 10. So what's going on? It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, people are really noticing that the the story Fudge is telling is just full of discrepancies and inconsistencies and, and just unclear elements. And Harry says the tone of the whispers around him has kind of changed. And now it's more just like bald curiosity and people are much more open to his side of things even kind of before the Quibbler article comes out so it's kind of like Umbridge it's like interesting to watch them finally really overplay their hand right Fudge's narrative is starting to buckle under the weight of its own implausibility right and reality is really creeping in and I mean also Umbridge cracking down the way she does further legitimizes Harry's side of things because mm -hmm. there's real fear in her actions and I think that's becoming clear to like the wider student population at Hogwarts and certainly all the teachers make it very clear that they believe him so he has a lot of important allies and that is only kind of building the other thing about these breakouts that's like I just find this really touching and a just a very moving fact is watching Neville kind of transform into this really hard worker who is beginning to find success and sort of find his footing magically because he's so galvanized by the breakout of his parents' torturer. Just like that scene where Neville learns one of the new jinxes faster than everyone except Hermione. It's just, I don't know, you're proud of him and you're also sort of it's deeply disturbing that this is something that he has to experience in order to kind of come into his own. Yeah, she set up that motivation nicely as well. Definitely. Um, 
fucking awkward to be Malfoy these days, huh? Yeah. Like, he's been, like, publicly named as the son of a Death Eater. He's not particularly swaggery. Yeah, the weird thing about it is, well, Umber just kind of trapped them. Well, they're not allowed to defend themselves because no one is supposed to have read this article. Yeah, it's true. And, but also, Malfoy seems freaked. Yeah, like, that's true. He, Crab, and Goyle are kind of still like snickering a little bit, but they also seem to kind of have their heads together like, what the fuck do we do? Like, this is not a good look for any of them. Right. And people believe it because people are starting to believe Harry. So I just think that's really significant. Um, we also have this sort of related side plot of this um, Broderick Bode murder and Harry's related vision of um, Lord Voldemort torturing. I guess he is not actually torturing Avery, but he knows Avery is about to be tortured for giving him incorrect information about Bode's ability to break into the Department of Mysteries. This is like a Kremlin-style fucking assassination. Yeah, man, except instead of neurotoxins, it's fucking devil snare. Uh, It's pretty fucked up. I don't know what else to say about it other than that. Well, it's one of those things where, first of all, like, improve your security at St. Mungo's. Jesus, nobody is, like, checking Christmas gifts. You'd think they would have slightly tighter security around someone who works for the Department of Mysteries? Obviously, this guy is a target. Also, it, like... He's what, like an Area 51 operative. Exactly. And what happened to him is mysterious in the first place. Like, it's unclear how he got all addled. I mean, we know it ends up being because a combination of the Imperius curse and, like, touching something he's not supposed to. But, yeah... Guard this guy. Like, this is a hot, this is like a top security clearance government official. I know. Like, you're just fucking putting stuff on his bedside table? That seems stupid. In a world where every other thing can kill you? Yeah, it's like, oh, hey, spy. Well, I guess that's what keeps happening with Russia, too. People are like, yeah, drink this tea from nowhere. So, (laughs) never mind. Maybe we're not good about this as muggles either. I don't know. It's pretty brazen of the Death Eaters to pull off an assassination in, like, the hospital. Well, but, I mean, they're taking advantage of this crisis of nobody understanding what's really happening. Like, there would be tighter security if Fudge wasn't blockading this information. Yeah, that's true. No one is... uh, No no one's suspicious right now. No one in the wizarding government is... The wizarding government is very studiedly not on high alert. Yeah, and so, you know... St. Mungo's, which I don't think is a government agency, but is sort of like ministry adjacent, is sort of following their lead. Uh, everything seems to be like a public-private partnership yeah, in the wizarding world. it does. You know? I can't tell if this is like, I mean... Well, certainly there's a lot of government oversight over St. Well, they Saint don't Mungo's. seem to pay for it, so I assume they have some version of like socialized medicine. Right. I don't know. Anyway... I don't know. Maybe the <laughs> the whole uh, the whole plot point with Arthur's insurance premiums got uh, left on the editing room floor <laughs> well, for obvious reasons. Again, though, it's it's just another one of these moments where you're like, no, why is no one suspicious here? This is a really really suspicious death, and it's on like page ten of the Prophet, and nobody notices it except the people who are really looking for it, aka. Hermione is the only one who can read. (laughs) 
And there's just all this shady shit going down and people are so oblivious and you just want to scream at them through the pages. Well, it gives the trio another chance to do their mystery ink thing. Yeah. Whenever you get to these points in the books, I think we've talked about this before a little bit, but you get why the next thing J.K. Rowling did was become Robert Galbraith. Mm-hmm. Because, like, she really does the mystery construction extremely well. Like, the puzzle pieces falling into place are a really fun part of these books. Even as the plots get more and more complicated and the sort of mystery part is less of the point. It's funny, my colleague, who has never read Harry Potter, just finished the Robert Galbraith books. And he quite liked them. Yeah, because she's good at mysteries. Mm -hmm. She puts together clues really well. Hilariously, in a true spirit of the Harry Potter whodunit, our ultimate perennial and great red herring, Severus Snape, rears his head again. Ron is like, wait, what if Snape is actually... And Hermione's like, I'm going to stop you right there, Ronald. Every fucking year you do this, it's never Snape would you get a grip. And he's like, but, but Snape, but... And even Harry's like, dude, Snape's an asshole, but it's never Snape. Until no. it is. And even then, it's like, not. not. Um, Alas. Yeah. That should be like the tagline of these books. Harry Potter. It's never Snape. <laughs> so the last thing that we have happen is very upsetting. Professor Trelawney gets removed from her job and has a super public meltdown in the middle of the entrance hall. Professor Trelawney was standing in the middle of the entrance hall with her wand in one hand and an empty sherry bottle in the other, looking utterly mad. Her hair was sticking up on end. Her glasses were lopsided so that one eye was magnified more than the other. Her innumerable shawls and scarves were trailing haphazardly from her shoulders, giving the impression that she was falling apart at the seams. Two large trunks lay on the floor beside her, one of them upside down. It looked very much as though it had been thrown down the stairs after her. Professor Trelawney was staring, apparently terrified, at something Harry could not see but that seemed to be standing at the foot of the stairs. No! she shrieked. No! This cannot be happening! It cannot! I refuse to accept it! You didn't realize this was coming? said a high girlish voice, sounding callously amused. And Harry, moving slightly to his right, saw that Trelawney's terrifying vision was nothing other than Professor Umbridge. Incapable though you are of predicting even tomorrow's weather, you must surely have realized that your pitiful performance during my inspections and lack of any improvement would make it inevitable you would be sacked. One thing about Trelawney is she's, like, wasted all the time these days. There's a, just a great deal of problem drinking at Hogwarts among because, the staff. as we said in the adult themes, Umbridge has created a toxic work environment, which often contributes to alcohol abuse. Yeah, um, turning to substances to self-medicate in this kind of environment. But, like, Hagrid is drinking too much. Poor Winky is probably still drunk somewhere down there in the kitchens. That's a weird scene when Harry goes into uh, the three broomsticks and Hagrid is there like three sheets to the wind or what? Is it three sheets to the wind? I don't know how many sheets it is. I don't know. Hag and Hagrid is there uh, 
clearly sloshed. He's got his giant bucket of meat or whatever. And he's like, yeah, Harry, we're both orphans. Fuck our lives. Yeah, Harry's a little bit like, what are you talking about right now, bro? Like, A, yes, but B, this is very weird timing. Harry's like, I'm already having a rough day, man. I don't need this right now. I need to get really (laughs) philosophical about what it means not to have a family. Hagrid likes to get real when he drinks, though. He's one of those drinkers. Yeah, every so often, Hagrid just, like, jumps down into a scene with, like, some fucking realness. And you're like, you should probably talk to children differently and also, like, go to some 12-step meetings. <laughs> um, but yeah, Trelawney's having the same problem. She's like... With cooking sherry. That's so gross. You'd think she could go down and ask the house elves for, like, something better. They're so accommodating. Certainly Dumbledore's got a stash somewhere. Or, yeah. Or, uh, you know, Hogsmeade is well-appointed, but I guess she never really leaves the castle because she's sort of a recluse, so... It's really, really sad. It also, it's interesting. I'm reading this book called The Recovering by Leslie Jameson, which is sort of about the relationship between substance abuse and the making of art and what it means to be an artist in recovery. I don't know. It's about a lot of things. It's a really wonderful sort of like long form memoir, essay, nonfiction hybrid thing. I love Leslie Jameson. Point being, she has this really interesting set of observations about the differences between how men's and women's drinking are perceived. And there really is a difference in how Hagrid is portrayed as sort of like a roving kind of drunken pal. And Trelawney's drinking is portrayed as like really shameful and really repugnant and sort of a sign of her. And hysterical. And hysterical Mm -hmm. and a sign of her like really losing her grip which is never true of Hagrid like Hagrid totally gets away with his drinking even when his drinking puts people in really serious danger or Mundungus too it's kind of played for laughs yeah exactly even like Dumbledore very often is like what if we got drunk instead of solving this problem (laughs) um most famously right before the time turner (laughs) well but you know Winky is another example like these these female drunks who are portrayed rather than as sort of like fun, roving, like... Browing out, kind of. But yeah, rather than this sort of like fun drunk friend, female drunks get portrayed in this really different way. So anyway, kind of off topic, but really good book and made me think about Trelawney as I was reading. I guess, yeah, it's not really funny that she's getting hammered on cooking sherry. No, like it's, Rowling's not playing that for it's laughs. It's not played for laughs. It's played as a really distinct sign of her losing it completely. And she drinks just as much as Hagrid drinks. Probably way less than Hagrid drinks. Hagrid drinks, well, yeah. I but mean, he's also much larger. I was going to say, like, more of a percentage than a total volume. Yeah. Also, Professor Trelawney seems new to this. I don't know. Professor Trelawney probably, like, does some drugs. Yeah, well, she's got to open her mind. Yeah, I have a lot of questions about wizard drugs in general, but I don't think Trelawney, I don't think Trelawney is like new to like substance use. This is, is this peak Umbridge villainy right now? At least for this book. She gets pretty bad in book seven, but 
when Harry notices that she's enjoying this whole oh, spectacle. Oh, yeah, she's like grinning. I don't know if it's peak because I think it gets worse. That's true. Well. I just think she keeps getting worse until she goes away. I'm going to change metaphors here, but there's really no bottom for Umbridge. Like, uh. It's true, but this is really dark, even for her, to watch her truly relish this scene what? of destruction. I think what's so upsetting about this scene is Trelawney didn't even start as one of her targets. Like, there's no reason for her to pick off Trelawney. She's not particularly politically active. She's, like, sort of Dumbledore-aligned, but she mostly just stays up in the tower. Umbridge is clearly doing this for no political objective other than just, like, for fun. Well, I think it's to wield her power. Yeah, I guess so. Trelawney is a really good, easy mark. It's a testing ground. For her to be like, don't fuck with me. Like, I am absolutely serious. I will kick you all out of here. Okay, so she's showing that she can fire somebody. Yeah, it's like that Friends episode where Monica hires Joey at the restaurant. Oh, you're right! Just so she can (laughs) fire him. I mean, that's not exactly what's happening. But yeah, it's she's... Firing someone not just specifically to exert her power over that person, but to tell the rest of the people that she's not fucking around and that she is not going to exercise any kind of restraint in using this power. And Trelawney sort of makes sense if you're going to fire somebody. Well, I mean, that's the thing that's really complicated here is she's vicious to Trelawney and this is a really unfair way of doing it. But no, Trelawney doesn't deserve to keep her job. She deserves to keep her home. She deserved to be put on some kind of performance improvement plan. She was put on probation. Yeah, but like But not not in good faith. Well, and sort of punitive probation as opposed to like growth probation. Right. She didn't get like professional development. Yeah. She just got like continued to be like heckled in class. But we've gone over this. Like Trelawney shouldn't be a teacher. She's really bad at it. Also, Dumbledore is only keeping her around because she made this one prophecy. He doesn't think she's a good teacher either. Two prophecies at this point. Okay. She's made two prophecies, one of which is much more important than the other. It's pretty hilarious right after the Quibbler comes out and all the teachers are showing their gratitude in various surreptitious ways when... Trelawney predicts that Harry will live a very long life and have like 12 children. Yeah, that's a really cute moment. Um, <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, that's what's so interesting is Trelawney's not easily like radicalized. She's really off in her own little world. So the fact that Umbridge has radicalized Trelawney to sort of align herself more strongly with Dumbledore and Harry shows how many enemies Umbridge is making. And it blows up in her face. It really does. Yeah. McGonagall and Sprout are so wonderful in this scene because McGonagall doesn't even really like Professor Trelawney. Like, she thinks she's kind of a lightweight. She doesn't think she's a good teacher. But she's so empathetic and just, like, comes to Trelawney's aid. Solidarity, man. Yeah, it's just a relief to see her, to see most people align themselves with her in this scene. One last thing that I just find hilarious is how obviously Dumbledore is trolling Umbridge by choosing Ferenz of all people, of all creatures rather, as the new divinations teacher because Umbridge is so anti like non-human magical species and is just incredibly bigoted but more importantly very very scared 
of like giants and centaurs and all these things. So she's going to be so uncomfortable living in the same building. Uh, It's going to freak Umbridge out severely to be teaching with this centaur guy. Yeah. And I just love that Dumbledore is like, oh, you want to fuck with me? Welcome to your hell. You really put the horse before the cart. I'm not going to laugh. At that. <laughs> I'm laughing. <laughs> yeah. Props to Dumbledore here. Way to be proactive for once in your fucking life. Well, you could have been proactive by trying to figure out a way that Umbridge couldn't fire your teachers unilaterally. But sure, I guess this is second best. Give it to Bins, man. He's a ghost, but whatever. Does Bins get inspected? <laughs> like what does that look like i don't know umbridge probably thinks his class is fine because they learn nothing right oh that's true he's probably like he probably immediately passed oh yeah top inspection. marks so dumbledore heads off into the forest to hire a new divination teacher what does that conversation look like i mean was this in the works doesn't seem like it i think it's one of those things where Folks just trust Dumbledore and they just kind of do what he says. So like, D- Dumbledore's like, hey, I got a business opportunity for you. <laughs> do you want to be a professor? <laughs> professor Horse. <laughs> uh, it reminds me in 30 Rock when he's like, <laughs> when, what does Kenneth say? He's like, when our mayor, he's talking about when their mayor wore a pantsuit, when their mayor wore a pantsuit for the first time. And he goes, and she was a horse. <laughs> Uh, but Ferenz is so much more than a horse. Oh, yeah, I know. Uh, I'm, I know. But I think Ferenz just sort of trusts that Dumbledore is like, has some shit up his sleeve and he really likes him. And also Ferenz is more curious about humans than most of the rest of them. That's so true. he does want to interact with them. And maybe this you know, was his ambition. He's got something to offer. He, unlike Trelawney, actually has a lot of methods for effectively predicting the future i wonder <laughs> nah. if hermione would actually end up liking his class that's true i mean he de- it definitely is like based in some kind of like centaur science of mm-hmm. some sort so dumbledore just went out there and was like friends you're hired now we gotta hoof it back to the castle oh my god <laughs> oh god on that saddle note, up buddy jesus on that note who's your unsung hero my unsung hero is Xenophilius Lovegood for spotting a great scoop and jumping on it. I'm going to push Ministry back be damned. briefly and say that Xenophilius indeed does not spot a good scoop because he wants to run with the Crumblehorn Snorkax first and push Harry's Quibbler interview to a later issue. Okay, well, you know, that gave them more time to, like, copy edit or whatever. Fair enough. Um, yeah, Xenophilius runs at least he was willing to run it uh marks against xenophilius for not paying contributors you need to step it up bro and for being a super duper conspiracy theorist the alex jones of the wizarding world the alex jones but like not he doesn't seem to have an i guess his ideology is just anti-establishment do they sell like male enhancement tablets (laughs) it's a weird thing about alex jones Uh, or like yeah various vitamins vitamins as it were my unsung heroes are professor flitwick and professor sprout for their very sweet and funny surreptitious ways of rewarding harry for his quibbler interview flitwick in particular is so cute he gives him sugar mice and is like don't tell anyone here's some sweeties for you 
I think it's really cute. I could go for a sugar mouse right now. I always could as well. Although they actually squeak. That's disgusting. Well, wizards and candy, man. What are you going to do? This week's episode is brought to you by Madame Puttyfoots. She's not like a regular tea shop owner. She's a cool tea shop owner. The audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix by J.K. Rowling. Please rate, review, subscribe, rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcast. You can leave us a review on Facebook as well. You can also reach out to us on various social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Quibbler Podcast. Send us your e-owls. We got a couple of super good ones this week. Quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. You can also sign up for our occasional and often very fun and full of owl news newsletter. That is tinyletter.com slash quibblerpodcast. Basically look up Quibbler Podcast and we're a bunch of places. And next week, we are continuing in the final third, finally, of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. We are reading the chapters called The Centaur and the Sneak and Snape's Worst Memory. Thanks, amigos. The Quibbler! She said, cackling, you think people would take him seriously if he's published in The Quibbler? Through the mist came a face Harry had seen once before on a dark, dangerous night in the Forbidden Forest. White blonde hair and astonishingly blue eyes, the head and torso of a man joined to the palomino body of a horse. This is Forenzi, said Dumbledore happily to a thunderstruck umbrage. I think you'll find him suitable. As I said, your qualifications are most impressive. Thank you. Now, would you mind if I ask you a few questions about being a centaur? Please, go ahead. Believe me, I heard them all. (laughs) Can I ride you? (laughs) Only if I can ride you. (laughs) Fair enough. 